Welcome to the Mind Body Breakthroughs Podcast, where we bring you amazing guests on the cutting edge of science, health, and business each week to share strategies you can use to get the breakthrough that you are looking for in your life. I am your host, Chris Donahue, and with me is my co-host, Dr. Nevada Gray. We're so glad that you're joining us today, and we'd like to invite you to join our free private Facebook community, Mind Body Breakthroughs. The views expressed on the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast are the opinions of the hosts and guests and are not to be taken as medical advice, as the hosts and guests do not provide medical care. Information provided is for educational purposes only. You should consult your medical provider in relation to your personal health and prior to making any changes in your diet or fitness. You can't fake a great steak. You can enjoy a steakhouse experience a few nights a year or every night with your Auto Wild Grill. Sear in amazing flavor and moisture with 1,500 degrees of grilling perfection. A perfect steakhouse crust every time on your time. Bring your own steak and let Otto take care of the rest. Make your house the great steakhouse in your neighborhood for your family and friends. Dr. Nasha Winters is a sought-after luminary and global healthcare authority in integrative cancer research who consults with physicians around the world bridging ancient therapies with advancements in modern medicine in the digital era. A personal journey with cancer and a medical career spanning over 25 years has Dr. Nasha on a mission to educate and empower the nearly 50% of the population expected to have cancer in their lifetime. Prevention is the only cure. She is also the best-selling co-author of The Metabolic Approach to Cancer, which has received many accolades. To learn more about Dr. Nasha Winters, visit www.drnasha.com. Good morning, Nasha. How are you? I am so great, Nevada. It's wonderful to be here with you and your little podcast world. It's huge. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to this podcast forever. I've been a huge fan of your work. I've owned several copies of your book, uh, which I graciously give out to people because it's a message that we all need to hear. And your journey started um, through a personal experience. And I was wondering, can you tell us about that girl? Sure, sure. Well, first of all, I mean, I don't imagine any of us would be having conversations on podcasts and whatnot had we not been touched by something in our lives that set us on fire. You know, before you started recording, we were talking about that process for you. So it, it's it's not like someone um, just wakes up one day and says, I'm just going to become a specialist in oncology. You know, it's I, I don't meet those people. There's some driver behind it, whether it was personal experience, a loved one, et cetera. So for me, um, where in my experience, you know, I kind of came into this world already a day late and a dollar short. It was, it was just health conditions after health conditions after health conditions. So my mom tells the story uh, that I would kick the ashtray off her belly while I was still in vitro. You know, like I was still, so I'm like, that probably was a starting point of a few things, you know? Um, I was also, um, you know, backing it up even further because some people think it's after you're out of the womb that things start changing. But I also was the first pregnancy after a stillborn 
child. So after the loss of my sister, that was another layer that was, you know, kind of hanging over the dark cloud over my family of origin. And there was this sort of expectation and this intensity of it's going to happen again, right? So imagine the the pool that I was swimming in in vitro that was probably laden with all kinds of ideologies, belief systems, you know, cytokines, inflammatory processes because of just fear, you know, and also hope. So there's that vacillation. And I kind of feel like in my own life, I kind of vacillated between those two extremes, which is quite interesting. But then when I was born, I could not digest anything. You know, in 1971 in Wichita, Kansas, no one was breastfeeding. That was definitely not kosher in that time. And so it didn't even occur that maybe breast was best. So instead, they put me through everything you can imagine. Massive colic, massive GI issues, gave me tons and tons of antacids. I mean, we're talking an infant. Um, finally, they settled on a soy formula, which in 1971, you can only imagine the, you know, the quality of those things. Um, and really, I was on to solids by the time I was three months old. It was just too much to deal with. So that should explain that the first two years of your life, your immune system is being created, uh, your, your, uh, you know, all of your gut functioning, everything is happening. Mine was a dest- like destroyed from the get-go and had all kinds of health issues. I was extremely cachectic as a little kid. I had that big, beautiful round belly and those tiny little bird legs, all kinds of health issues, all types of coughs. When, it, when everybody else got chicken pox for a couple of days, I would get it for a few weeks. When people would have fevers, like little fevers, I would have like 105 fevers. Now in some ways, that's where I would save my tush, right? My body goes to extremes. My consciousness goes to extremes in life today. But fast forward after many issues, starting menstruating at nine, back in the late 70s, early 80s, that was not normal. Today, it's common, still not normal, but it wasn't then. Fast forward to by the time I was 11, such severe endometriosis, they put me on the birth control pill, like severe, bleeding every day, but a few days of the month. That was weird. No one thought it was strange that I pooped once a month. They just told my mom that was my pattern. So that was weird. All of these things. And again, we just kind of lived with normalcy. Like this is just Nasha's norm right? That's, I think, what we do in our culture and our society. By the time I was 14, I had cervical cancer, 16. Again, it was just cry out and burned off each time. It was very superficial, um, low grade. So there was that piece. No one questioned it. I had a root canal at 14, again at 16, again at 19. By the time I was 19 in college and that failed root canal again, because we learned later in time, I had three, six roots at every tooth. So that's why I kept failing. I'm giving you all this background so that you recognize that there was a pile going on. There was a smoldering, you know, cesspool pile inside my body and being, and we just kept layering drugs and different things on top of it and just sort of let me just keep doing life. So I never thought I was unhealthy. It never occurred to me. It never occurred to me that the massive cystic acne all over my body was a problem. I just layered on the the base, right? I just put on more stuff and cover it up. I worked at hot dog and a stick for all of my junior high and high school years. That was my square meals. We were very poverty stricken um, growing up. And so that was the one place I knew we could get food, quote unquote, food. And so by the time I was 19 in college, living on ramen, you know, really working several jobs, I was working full time, plus taking 21 uh, full hours in the biomedical sciences. I was a biology chemistry you know, major. I started having really bad symptoms, but it just seemed more of the same, just a little bit more intensified. But it was to the point where I would pass out during class from pain and end up in the ER. And they're like, oh, you have a cyst that just burst, or that's likely what you have. Or I'd show up at a couple, you know, the next month. They're like, 
oh, you just have your endometriosis is flaring. Here's some more drugs. Oh, you're just histrionic. You're just anxious. Here's some more drugs. It layered like that for almost nine months before I ended up in the ER with my belly the size of a very, very, very pregnant woman. Um, tiny stick legs again, like my childhood, little tiny stick arms, unable to breathe. My pulse ox was down in the low 80s. Um, they When they started doing a full exam, I had massive ascites. That big belly was fluid filling up my whole abdomen. When I finally had someone do a proper um, scan at that time, we had an MRI at the, at the hospital in 1991. That's when they realized I had a huge mass on my right ovary. I had a mass um, on my liver. I had peritoneal carcinomatosis and little implants all over my pelvis. I was filled with fluid. They drained the fluid in the hospital. It was bloody, which is a malignant uh, form of ascites, not just inflammatory, and realized that my kidney, my liver were in end failure, end stage failure, and that my heart and lungs were filled with fluid and wrapped, you know, fluid was wrapped around my heart and causing major problems. So ultimately I should have died. Let's just put it that way. Instead, they said, you're too sick um, to even get treatment. So you have probably three months to live. With treatment, you'd probably still have three months to live. This is me at 19 sitting there going, I've been coming to you for months now with issues. And you're now telling me that I'm going to die from this. Now, mind you, part of why we're talking today is we're going to talk about some things around the psyche around this. Up until that point, I honestly, Nevada, did not want to live. I didn't. I actually tried to extinguish my own life on a few occasions leading up to that moment. The place that I came from seemed like I could never overcome what I came from. The expectations for me in the world were very low. <laughs> you know, the, the, we don't go to college. No one in my immediate, you know, went to college. It was like, we just did, it's not what you do. You know, you, 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 if, if anything, you get an associate's degree and you become a, a secretary. Like that was the, that was the high hopes um, for my world, my existence, you know, I, I expected to be, uh, you know, abused, battered, you know, in relationships, I expected to, to be abused in all my, um, you know, personal relationships with my family members, I expected to have all those things, I didn't even know that there was another way. And so when you're in that place, it makes me really think about the world we're in today, that I know what that place feels like, you know, I have a sense of it, I know we all have our own journey and our own experience. But I know when it feels like there's no hope that there's no way out, that there's no way to change it, that there's absolutely, you're just stuck no matter what. I know what that felt like. And it was so horrible that I didn't want to be here at all. And so interestingly enough, it took a terminal diagnosis to wake me the F up and to say, no, wait a minute, <laughs> you and only you can change these circumstances. You and only you can break the lineage, can break the cycle. You and only you can overcome, you know, generations of, 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 of this way of thinking, being, feeling, expressing. And so it began my journey. And so basically I didn't expect to live. That was not my expectation. It wasn't like, I'm gonna beat this. That wasn't it. It was, I wanna understand. And so somehow I got wired with this brain that says, I want to understand the why to be, to understand where I am in this moment. So I have an understanding of where I came from. So I then also know where I want to go. So that is how I look at every patient that's come before me. It's like, I want to understand how you got to this point. I want the story. I want the details. I want the familial history. I want the genetics, the epigenetics. I want, I want the details to help me understand what brought you to this moment. That is what sheds light on where we're going to go next. 
that's what helps us make sure we don't land back into the same soil that got us sick to begin with, whether that's mentally sick, politically sick, you know, spiritually sick, physically sick, it doesn't matter. That soil is what we're all grown from, but we can change it. We can pluck the weeds, we can amend it, we can plant whatever the heck we want in that garden. And that's what changed for me. In that moment, and you so eloquently put it when we were talking before about the quantum shift. And this doesn't matter if it's cancer diagnosis, a cauda equina syndrome, a, you know, a mental illness, a, a car accident. Like it doesn't matter what needs to be changed. It's within you to do so. We are miracles, every one of us. Yes. And you have been through such a trauma. Your body was put through a trauma. You were born into generational trauma. And one thing that we often don't talk about, because when we go to the doctor, we have a physical exam, they provide medication, they provide a diagnosis, and that's how we manage it. But we often don't get an emotional exam or Mm. a spiritual exam to see how could the trauma that we experienced or the severe stress uh, from a trauma that we've experienced, how does that stay in the body and affect the body and produce illness. There's a field of study called psychoneuroimmunology. And I was just wondering if you could set a foundation for our audience that may be thinking, oh, I just have to change my diet and eat better and everything's going to be wonderful. Uh, Well, and for bringing that up, because I think so much is, so I, I have, I think maybe I could probably count on one hand and the thousands and thousands of patients who've come to me for consultation regarding their cancer diagnosis, where maybe on one hand, did I have somebody say, um, like everybody else says, I was healthy until I got cancer. I've had a handful of people say, I knew this was gonna happen, or of course this happened, or yeah, it makes sense why this happened for me. And so most of us are in the belief system I think rightfully so to some degree, because you don't know what you don't know until you know, right? That this somehow happens to us, but it's born of us. I mean, cancer is part of us. It, it, we all have cancer all the time. There is no such thing as a cure. It's about a relationship, a communication, a community of cells within your body that have gone rogue and lost sort of their, they've become orphaned, my husband calls it, and like they kind of are acting out. Um, and the rest of it. So we have to bring them back into the fold and remind them of where they belong and remind them of their inner workings and their communication and the skill sets that they were meant to have, right? So there's that context right there. Interestingly enough, in 1991, at the time of my diagnosis, this is October at this time, 1991, you and I were talking about this, that when everyone's like, you're done, there's nothing else. Even a second opinion said, you're done, there's nothing else. I was also uninsured. That was another layer, whole another story. Um, was on my own, was on a family fast at that time for needed reasons, all kinds of things going on. So really an island by myself. And luckily a book jumped off a shelf at me at my little library, um, Quantum Healing by Deepak Chopra. And it was in that moment that I realized that's what was happening within me, this psyche of I don't need to, to I, like I can heal into dying was I guess my my belief system. I, I fully expected to not be on this planet. I didn't wanna die then. Finally, I had the pilot light lit back on. But when I started reading that book, I was running across some of the things that Deepak was talking about back in 91. Think about this, you guys, this is, you know, people now, he's like an icon in the place and kind of made fun of at this point. But in 1991, a girl from Kansas reading this book, it's like, I mean, it was like aliens landed in my brain or something. It was crazy. Um, 
but it started leading me down the path to people like Candace Pert, who's no longer with us, but one of the original sort of researchers and scientists in the field of psychoneuroimmunology. Um, Dr. Ader's work, who was the, the, the man who coined the term psychoimmunology. Later, your, one of your mentors and inspirations, uh, Bruce Lipton, a, a microbiologist who also got very passionate about uh, what was going on in the field, if you will, to affect um, expression of cells and genes and, and all these pieces. And because I had this scientific mind, because I was in that field, I was, it's, it, it stuck with me. Like I realized I knew I'd come from some pretty interesting and extraordinary situations, but in the, the place we do to protect ourselves, again, just like the doctors normalized my non-functioning bowels and normalized, you know, a, a nine-year-old, you know, menstruating little girl and normalized, you know, all of these patterns that were going on in my physical body, my family of origin my culture, my community, and myself in order to survive normalized the toxicity and the abuse in my environment. Didn't even realize it. It wasn't until my sophomore year, shortly after my diagnosis in college, I was in an abnormal psych class because I was like, great, I'm going to be a, a biology chemistry major, but I'm going to take some psychology and some sociology, but I really like some philosophy. I wanted to learn everything, right? That was, that's always been my nature. Sitting in this psych class, one day is when I realized from this concept, they brought to our attention the ACE score. This is way, I mean, this is mid, you know, early 90s. Um, it was just starting to come out and people started to understand that childhood trauma impacted our immune system, impacted, you know, our basically set the stage for future illnesses into our young adulthood and, and beyond. And so basically these are 10 questions, adverse childhood event score, 10 questions about 10 experiences you had prior to the age of 18. And for every yes you have, you have like a 20% incremental increase in the likelihood of having a, a chronic illness, like an autoimmune condition or a cancer or other like cardiovascular disease, et cetera, at a younger age and, and does show survival rates much lower in the population of the people with more yeses. So to give context to your listeners, if you've ever taken that score for yourself, you can easily download it for free online. Take it and get a sense. I have all my patients take this test, by the way. Um, I had 10 out of 10. So it was like, it was this aha moment sitting there realizing, okay, well now I understand there was a good reason why. And now suddenly I have someone pulling the veil off saying, maybe you should explore the fact that you have normalized this and, 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 and made this like who you are. Like, it was just this huge moment. Ironically, one of my jobs was working as a detox counselor, graveyard shifts, um, and a psych unit. So for me, weirdly, I felt at home there. That's like, I realized like that was my, I wanted to work in addictions and with mental illness because that's all I knew growing up. Like that was home. So strange, right? How we go into these places. And so it was those moments that led me down the rabbit holes of, of the biochemistry and the physiology of stress response and the, 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 the changes in our neuropathways, because you're big into the neuro, you know, the neurology component, which I love neuroanatomy and all of those components here, but started to understand the rewiring of our brains from traumatic experiences. So basically, we've created these big grooves that it's difficult to get out of. It is difficult to change your mindset when you've been re-traumatized, 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 re or never even known anything. But for so long, it's like, 
how do I even know there's another world out there available to me? And that was when people say, well, what did you do for your cancer? And what did you do for this? Like, honest to God, I'm still on this journey. Okay. So we're, it'll be 29 years in October, 2020. It's like, it's like I live, I'm living with my cancer always. It's like, it's, and it's, we're not enemies, you know, we're kind of frenemies. We know a lot about each other. We understand there's a symbiotic relationship here, but ultimately I'm still exploring these patterns within me because it was really for me, the uh, deepening of my quote unquote family fast. I, I left the place where I grew up. I physically removed myself from it. And I physically removed myself from people that did not see any other way for me to be in this world. So we are the expression of the five closest people around us. Okay. That's huge. And take, you know, let, let that sink in again for your listeners. Like we are the expression of the five people closest to us. So if you think about the five people you spend the most amount of your time with, whether that's in your home, your work, your church, your, you know, your book club, whatever it is, think about that and think about those individuals and think about how they make you feel when you're with them and think about their own choices and their own relationships and their own expressions in the world. That will tell you a lot about yourself. A lot. Heavy duty right there, right? And it's so, so important, Nisha, for, for people to hear, because one of the most interesting things when I was on my own journey of healing from Quadra Aquinas syndrome, which many people don't heal from, yeah. I was really interested in spontaneous healing and spontaneous remission. And mm. so many people, when they get the news, I'm sorry, there's nothing more that we can do for you. You only have months to live, or you're going to be living with this condition for the rest of your life and get used to the new normal. They tend to go away on vacation uh, or just disconnect and really start to make peace with their life and undergo a paradigm shift that they may not even be aware of. And then they come back from vacation or they come back from their trip or live in their bucket list and they go for a scan and their tumor is gone. They're in 100% complete remission. And that science fascinates me, the science of, of quantum mechanics. And I was just wondering if you could speak to some of that science. What, what do you think is, is going on? Do you think it's, uh, you know, a detox just from the environment? Because there's also the chemicals in our environment, there's the food in our environment, but there's also the stressors and the energy of the people around us and the cluttering of our homes yeah. that when we get away from that, uh, we're, we're able to heal. And I was just wondering if you could speak to what you think um, some of the science is behind that. Absolutely. And again, you know, this isn't even my perspective. This is what I've learned from other scientists that have come before me and I've gotten to, you know, kind of ride on their shirt tails and drug to the next, to the next scientist who taught me something new. But, you know, there's a few things, a few pointed areas here. I mean, first of all, a, just even a fight with your spouse can lower your IgA levels, which are one of your immunoglobulins to combat illness around you and, and keep your immune system honing, you know, like humming along. One argument with your spouse can de depress your IgA for seven hours. So 
I mean, if you don't fight with your spouse on some occasion, I mean, this is, I'm talking to you, this is a woman who's my husband. And I've been married now for 19 years, coming in 29 years together. Cause what jackass thinks I'm going to date the dying girl, you know, like, like hilarious of the bond. We clearly have something that's way beyond our understanding in this lifetime, but you know, we are definitely peas in a pot. He's another scientist. He's a biochemist. He's an epigenetic, um, epigenetics expert and a nutritional biochemist expert. So for fun, this is what we do. You know, we met over a fetal pig for crying out loud. Um, but that that place is that all of your relationships you're going to have challenges you're going to have confrontation but if you don't deal with it if you don't actually confront it if you don't actually resolve it and you start to resent it or you start to just live in a place of fear or anxiety or rage or whatever your immune system's never on okay so there's one example so we know iga suppression just from a single incident of stressor of conflict how many of us just like really rip off the bandaid and deal with it right in the moment? It's rare. It's a rare find to find those folks. Right. And if you do, they're usually considered jerks or really blunt, but you know, God, they probably have great immune systems, <laughs> you know, like just rip that off. So there's that piece. The other piece is of course, just cortisol itself. Like just the, the flooding of cortisol. Now, interesting. We need a little bit of cortisol. We need some stress. Stress is that hormetic effect of stress is what grows us. It's our growth factors. It's our resilience. It's what creates ad adaptation in our body, which is also a very big key to longevity. But it's the chronic, relentless pressure of stress and, a, and an inability to modulate and modify your expression of it. So if you're just someone's like internalize, 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 squish, 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 push, push, push down the stress, that's problematic. Or people who have it hit them and it bounces off explosively, that's problematic. There's a, a place in there that's like, okay, yeah, I noticed that. I felt that. Okay, what does that mean? What is it trying to teach me? What's it telling me? What do I need to do to care for myself? That should be happening just as quickly and automatically, but it isn't. Most of us go mindless. We shove food in our mouth. We uh, turn on the TV. We, you know, have sex with a stranger. We, you know, we do whatever to like quiet and normalize that experience because all of those things I just described are totally quote unquote normal in our culture, right? It's not a problem, but over time that starts to accumulate. The other thing is kind of, so I've alluded to that, like the stress, the stress builds up in the tissues and can't release. And when cortisol builds up, you also get a spike in glucose and insulin. You also get a spike in androgens and estrogens. And you start to store all those things in your fat cells, which become like little mini toxic storage dump sites throughout the whole body, like little tiny mini, um, you know, a super fun sites within the body. And then that itself starts to collect more and more chemical signaling and starts to accumulate. And then because of that, we tend to accumulate even more biomass and more adipose tissue which starts to store up all the things that we're exposed to today. It's no longer a matter of, are you, you know, exposed to toxic things? It's how much and to what effect. And then we layer on top of that something that the people like Bruce Lipton and others earlier on their time started recognizing that we're all kind of born with a blueprint, but we don't have to follow those rules. We can redecorate the room. We can rearrange the furniture. We can express it differently. So for instance, if you have came into this world with something known as calm tea, capital C-O-M-T, SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, you are someone who takes stress from your world, from your environment, and you basically just brew in it. And it's harder for you to clear that catecholamine stress chemical out of your body. And so it also changes 
the chemistry, the structure. It literally changes the, the anatomy of your brain. It, you know, so hormones, stress, and sugar. So sex hormones, cortisol, and insulin can all change the actual geography and anatomy of your brain, which can quiet down other places that need to be in, in, you know, activated and overstimulate other parts that need to be activated. So those are some simple things to start to think about there is it changes the way you think and feel and keeps you stuck in a particular patterning. And then if you continue to beat up your gut with things like glyphosate from, you know, the food systems or, or too much sugar or just eating incessantly, never giving your body the break that it needs to take out the garbage, you start to create this little brain gut dance as well. And interestingly enough, a lot of people think that we, the way we feel is based on our brain. It's really based on our GI tract. I mean, 80% of our serotonin and dopamine is actually more related to what's happening in our gut. And we ignore our gut instinct all the time. And again, we go, we override it. So it's really interesting how they all, nothing happens in a vacuum. So again, I'm taking you guys on this crazy, like I'm just downloading information here, but I'm wanting folks to recognize there's never a single t- target or a single trigger or a single treatment. Just like with cancer, like just recently I had an, an email from a woman saying, oh, I have the ALK, ALK genetic predisposition for my non-small cell lung carcinoma. And I see that you're telling people that, you know, most of the time we can overcome our genetic expression, but I have that one that's like, I can't do anything about it. I'm like, who told you that bullshit? Like, I just want to say, no, that's a molecular marker target on that particular tissue cell at that time. It is also dynamic, just as dynamic as you. And your, the fact that you believe that this is your undoing is your undoing. Like that's the place. So I'm like, please get out of that mindset right now. Get back it up. Don't go myopic, go massively back her up and take a look at what else is in the bucket. Because what loaded into that bucket that made that, that molecular expression happen on that particular tissue type. And you have to remember, I'm a person who doesn't treat cancer. I don't treat cancer. I don't treat cancer cells. I don't treat tumors. I treat the terrain that's those tumors and those cells are floating around in. So bringing that back to the psychoneuroimmunology in Chinese medicine, when I see somebody with a lung cancer or a gut, a GI cancer in Chinese medicine, the lung large intestine meridian um, is a, a partnership, if you will. And the emotion of lung and large intestine issues is grief and loss. So what I actually ask a patient when I see a tissue type, you know, land somewhere, I'm like, what, especially in the lung, I'm like, what? Tell me about grief in your life. What's that been like? And people often think I have a crazy magic ball, you know? And again, like you said in the very beginning of our interview, no one asked those questions, but honestly, I mean, even though the book, it's the 10th part of the 10, you know, terrain, 10 pieces here, mental, emotional, it really should be the first part. But if I started with that, with every patient that came to see me, they'd go running for the hills and I'd never see them again. That's also the hardest of our world to unpack. Just like in the Radical Remission book by Kelly Turner and her Radical Hope book that just came out, when you look at the nine factors that influence how or why we get a chronic illness like cancer or anything else and how we can resolve it, you'll notice only two of them are tangible. One is like supplements and herbs and the other one is diet. And as we also were talking about right before this podcast, there is no one way 
there's a common theme that we all want to get to. We want to get back to our innate natural wisdom of metabolic flexibility, of which more than 88% of Americans have lost. And likely that's probably true for the rest of the world as well. That's just a study done on U.S. soil. But we've lost that ability to be a hybrid engine and to utilize our energy appropriately. We are all just like mismanaged energy. That's what we've become, you know, in the last 100 years or so on all levels down from the gross level down to the microscopic level down to the molecular level. And so when we look at that, the, the seven other items that impact your ability to heal completely play in the field, the sandbox of mind, body, you know, mind, mental, spirit. So emotion, spiritual resilience, all of those pieces. So when we look at the world around us right now, I am watching some very curious things happen. You know, from somebody who's walked through multiple journeys of having my mortality in my face, up my nose and up my ass, I could not ignore it. There was no way to. With it here for all of us as a collective to witness globally right now, we are all in this moment where we have an opportunity to experience post-traumatic stress resilience versus PTSD. We don't have to become the disease. We can heal from it. We can evolve from it. But it takes a deep, deep desire to change everything about yourself. Everything. So ancient belief systems, you know, the, the family trip that's been placed on you, you know, the expectations of the people in your life, those five people we talked about, what, you know, you were even telling me at the beginning of this conversation, these last few months have completely deepened your purpose and passion on this planet. Hallelujah to hear that. Because I hear other people that are just like frozen in absolute fear and terror and paralysis. And I'm like, get moving folks. You're either going to go out with the old or you're moving to create something entirely new here. It's time. This is our opportunity. Never in human collective consciousness have we all been at the same place at the same time. We might have different experiences. In fact, we all definitely have different experiences that have brought us here, but the opportunity is huge. We are dealing with a collective terminal diagnosis altogether. What do you choose to do with that information? And that's such a powerful analogy because so many times we're conditioned to manage and store our emotions rather than release our emotions. And I like to parallel that to, to tumor lysis syndrome because okay. you're, you're debulking the tumor, but you're also having a quantum detox at the, at the same time. And as a society, and that's what's happening right now is we're in the midst of a huge paradigm shift. And so many people are in the midst of that paradigm shift in their health. So the yeah. inputs that we're putting in our body are really important, but also what we're releasing is, is equally important. Mm. And with those inputs um, and outputs, I was just wondering, what are some strategies that you could offer people to help them with that quantum detox uh, when they're going through completely rewiring their mindset and living a new life that's more aligned with their purpose. Cause for a lot of people that's un uncomfortable because it's going to be completely out of your, your safety zone and your survival patterns that have kept you going th this entire time. How do you advise people not to shrink back, but to mm. um, empower themselves to keep moving forward? That is such a 
That is such a good question, such a powerful question. And I think that the answer will vary a bit within each of us, but there are a few things I always ask of folks. And so again, when people come to me, they're like, I have a stage four diagnosis. I've gone to Sloan Kettering. I've gone to Dana-Farber. I've been everywhere. Everyone's told me I'm screwed. I'm like, great. So what are you going to do about it? Like there's like, I, the, my first thing is like, stop listening to everybody else's decision on when your expiration date is going to happen. That's not in anybody's human possibility. Right. Um, that's number one. Number two, my next question for them is let's talk about this here. So in your life, three things, what brings you joy? I asked them that right away. It's, it's interesting. You, if they can quickly answer it, I know I have something to work with. If it takes them a moment, I'm like, okay, this is actually a good endpoint. And if they don't have joy, I know that their prognosis is bleak, but I'm going to talk to them about how to start to find joy. Second question, gratitude for what are you grateful? You would be shocked, shocked, you know, cause I think it seems like it's overdone. Like, Oh, do a gratitude journal. Have a gratitude practice. I think everybody thinks that we all just swim around in gratitude. No, no, we don't. Because what I hear from people who are given the hardest news of their lives or up against whatever traumas are in their face at that moment, wherever you are in this world, gratitude is not in the building in those moments. So um, the people who are the thrivers, the people who do overcome, the people who are spontaneous remitters, things like that, is when they say, I'm grateful that my family's safe in the midst of like after a big hurricane, you know, or... I'm grateful that I can um, take a walk now in my neighborhood and feel safe because my neighbors are coming out to help me, despite that I've never felt safe in this neighborhood before. Or I'm grateful that I still feel pretty good despite the tumor load, you know, whatever is. So when I hear people immediately say, I'm really grateful for, and it's interesting because the grateful for is always very simple. And it's, a, it's like our core humanity of love connection, you know, wonder, faith, all those pieces are what comes forward. So I know when someone is able to find the good, even in the darkest, hardest moments, again, they're going to be better. But most people, unfortunately, are like, why me? What the hell? What is this? How dare? I can't believe this. You know, I do everything right. How I run, I eat well. I like when people come at it like that, that's a little bit more, we got a little more work to do. That's tough to break through that shield because that's resistance. That's resistance to all, including the good, including the healing. So that's something to be clear within yourself. And then the third is purpose. And there are actually multiple clinical studies. You can actually go into PubMed and type purpose and prognosis. See what pops up. Okay. We know patients with purpose have a better prognosis than those without. So when I hear people kind of go, I just want to serve humanity or I just want to help people that, okay, no, that's not, I need you to get clear. How does that look? Does that look that you go and volunteer at a nursing home once a week just to, you know, maybe read poetry? Is that, you know, because it doesn't have to be these big grandiose, like I'm going to cure cancer. Like that isn't the, that isn't the thing. It's like, what is your purpose? What gets you out of the house? What gets you out of bed every morning? What puts that fire in your belly to do something? Because what is really innate in our humanity is to be human. <laughs> and in the world today, I feel like we are 
seeing some of the best of humanity coming forward and some of the worst. And it's starting to push us deeper into joy, gratitude, purpose, seeking it, finding it, expressing it. And those who don't are going to keep clumping off just like a cancer and create more of a tumorous environment that's going to necrose and get sicker and sicker and weaker and weaker. But I also know that in the face of joy and gratitude and purpose, you strengthen the healthy and you embolden that and you, you draw more. It magnetizes way more to that. So I think there's that piece. And then when it comes down to how do we start to take these little steps, first of all, a quote that my grandmother always said, my grandma from Kansas, very, 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 very pious Methodist woman. Okay. She would literally, who never cursed in her life, but this was her favorite time to use it. She'd say, shit or get off the pot. She would say that all the time. I laugh hysterically to this point. She just passed away a couple of years ago. And I'm like, I miss that. Cause coming out of her mouth was like, it meant something. When I say it, everyone's like, she's curses is like a sailor. So we're just not a good listener, but to see my grandma Marjorie saying things like that. Some of the things that she experienced in life, I think about, it brings me to my knees um, of what she experienced, you know, and for her to still like have that resilience in these moments and find, you know, her way in this world was pretty fascinating here. But that piece is like, okay, what have you always said? I'm going to do this when, you know, that concept of if not now, when, if not me, who, this is what the world is asking of each of us right now. So it doesn't have to be grand. It can be, and grand is, is like spending that time with your loved ones. It is absolutely following whatever that purpose is. So if you've been like, I'm going to lose that 10 pounds, or I'm going to quit smoking, or I'm going to start volunteering, or I'm going to finally write that book, or I'm going to finally, you know, resolve that issue with my loved one. Now is the time. Now is the time for that. And number two, we alluded to this early on in our discussion as well, hormesis. Okay, the concept of hormesis, little doses of stress that increase resilience, exuberance in the in the organism and vitality and longevity. It is not going to be comfortable what the world is asking you to do right now. It is not going to be easy. It does not come to you in a form of a pill or a potion. It is hard, deep, painful, excruciating work. And the benefit and the gain from it is beyond anything you could possibly imagine. And, and that's what's being asked of us. We have become a very complacent and entitled culture that thinks that we should not have to struggle for anything, for anything. And, and that's this other place here is we won't struggle as much if we ga- gather our forces together and support each other. But guess what? Like hormones is small things. Like your house always being 74 degrees, rain, snow, shine, all four seasons, that creates a complacency and entitlement within your physiology. You know, that's where things like getting out in the brisk, cold morning and walking barefoot on the grass does a very powerful thing to kind of charge up your cells. Free, right? Another free thing, making sure wherever you are, even if it's cloudy, even if it's snowing or raining, you get outside or look out a window at where the sun is coming up and the sun is coming down twice a day to get the light reflection, even if it's filtering through. That red light that's filtering through at sunrise and sunset resets your entire circadian rhythm, your hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, your gut brain connections. It charges all the cells in your body. It's like plugging yourself into a, you know, a battery recharger. 
that right there, it's incredible when less than 15 or less, less Americans spend less than 15 minutes outdoors a day. Get outside. I don't care how hot or cold it is. It doesn't matter. That's the hormesis that you need. Do not spend it walking from your 74 degree temperature house to your 74 degree temperature car as quickly as possible with all of your coverings and get in and completely box yourself off in this little EMF radiated little box that you're going to drive down the road in, you know, get outside, ground yourself, you know, barefoot as much as possible, lay on the earth, go into nature. These are the weird things, the places where we're struggling the most with COVID, the places where we're struggling the most with, um, with people feeling disenfranchised are in places where they are major na nature deficit experiences going on and concrete jungles where walking barefoot is like, well, that's weird, right? If you have to even make your own little patch of grass on your patio, right? Go and step on that. Those are the types of things that we can start to do to charge. You even spoke to the fact that when you were in your own healing process, that you spent a lot of time at the seaside. I mean, we came, that's where humanity started was basically at the edge of water. So that's another place to recharge our batteries and walking on a beach. If you can get to water of any source, but walking on the ocean is very powerful to recharge those inner batteries as well. And so my husband and I, by design, um, spend our winters now down in Mexico. We still work, do our normal, our lives are exactly the same. We just rent our house in Colorado during the winter months for people who want to be ski bums. We did that, been there, done that. We're over that phase of our lives. And now we want to be beach bums. And instead of getting out and hiking in the snow every morning, we get up and hike on the beach every day. You know, like those things charge. I feel a difference in my chemistry. Again, free to walk in nature. And instead, what we're telling people to do, like get inside, be afraid, shelter in, hunker down, disconnect, don't touch, don't hug. The things that mess us up the most are cortisol, lack of oxytocin, and um, insulin problems. So we're all crammed in our own homes, oxytocin deficient because we're not getting our hugs, shoving food in our mouths to bring the joy that we're missing to our lives. You know, trying to ground ourselves and get that dopamine fixed because guess what? Sugar's hitting the same spots in the brain as cocaine. And then we're stressed because we're completely plugged in to whatever media channel you're plugged into. They're all crap. Like, you know, it's like, I don't have TV. Okay. I, I, I um, don't, you know, like I, I don't watch, I watch news on some levels, but I gather my news um, information from around the world. I don't really trust what's coming out in the US. I also am a critical thinker. I do my own research. You have to. And I also know that from talking to my colleagues who've gone through this um, with patients in places like Italy, et cetera, I'm looking at their data and I'm looking at their labs and I'm looking at these things you call cytokine storms. And you know, all the pieces here, we see this in cancer all the time. Overzealous expression, you know, responses to immune therapies treating cancer today look exactly like a, a cytokine storm of COVID. Exactly. And guess what? The people who are going to have this problem have high neutrophils, low lymphocytes, high platelets. So there's platelet aggregation um, issues, typically have low oxygenation or problems perfusing or problems with, you know, maybe they're very, not very active. So their oxygen levels aren't very good. They tend to be metabolically broken. They tend to have high LDH, which is lactase dehydrogenase, which is a marker of metabolic flexibility and how the body is, how the mitochondria are basically functioning. They tend to have, um, you know, like issues of sugar metabolism. We talked about the high insulin, which also like rust the tissues, rust the bodies, coagulates the blood. 
all of these pieces here. It's like everything we fear the most, it's happening in the world around us and the populations that are being more, that are succumbing to it. This doesn't, this, 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 you know, cancer, COVID, they don't recognize socioeconomic status or skin color. We're all in this together. And to add to that, certain socioeconomic status are in food deserts that don't have access to the things to help them eat differently or live in inner cities where they don't have nature and they don't have the ability to go out and take these walks. But guess what? Change that. You can still do that. Um, or that we're in situations where there are certain um, epigenetics from our cultural backgrounds that sets us up to have a higher propensity of clotting disorders, things like that. Well, great. Learn that about yourself. Learn that about your, your hereditary. Like, for instance, the Mediterranean descent people have a higher instance of something known as beta thalassemia. They have a lot of issues with their perfusion and they have a lot of issues with their marrow. These are folks who do great with things like hyperbaric oxygen, ex exercise, cryotherapy, and resveratrol as an example right? African-Americans have a lot of clotting disorders. They have a higher incidence of, of um, stroke and cardiovascular disease, diabetes. Like, great. What are you going to do about that? Let's change that up. Let's get, let's get moving. Let's get eating differently. Let's get you back to the diet of your ancestors. Let's look at the genetic mismatch of how that we're eating today doesn't match at all where we came from. You know, let's look at the Let's look at the, um, you know, the Asian, the, the Asian population who have issues around the way they metabolize alcohol, for instance, like probably shouldn't be drinking alcohol then. Like you're, you're, you came to this world with a set of genetics, the way your body deals with these things, that that's probably not the best way for you to deal with your stress response. You know, these are just examples that every culture, every, uh, uh, you know, background has different vulnerabilities. And when you're educated on what those are, you change your risk factors, you change your outcomes. You don't expect your medical system to do it for you because there's not a pill for taking a walk. <laughs> there's not a, a pill for making different dietary choices or lifestyle choices. There's not a pill for who you decide to spend your time with in your inner circle. You know, there's, those are the things that we are being called to now more than ever. It's like, learn about where you came from. Take a look under the hood and know what is making you tick. If you don't know what your hemoglobin A1C is, if you don't know what your vitamin D level is, if you don't know what your basic neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio are, you're fucked. Excuse my language, but you need to know that because you're all going to be shocked when you realize that that information is gold. And that is the fire, the catalyst to help inspire you to do whatever it takes to change those in your favor and not be a sitting duck waiting for cancer to gobble you up or, you know, a chronic disease or an acute infection to gobble you up, you know? And so these are the things that I'm hoping and praying that we wake up to and that we are far more powerful than we're being led to believe. And if we placate and start to just say, well, just wait for, just sit in your home comfortably, adding more insult to injury of this broken terrain and just wait for us to come and save you with this little shot that we're gonna give you. That is more of the broken thinking. And I pray that we, whether you choose to get that little shot when it becomes available to you or not, is that becomes your choice. But sitting around thinking that that's going to be what saves your butt is really where the paradigm shift needs to happen. And that's when you do take advantage of these times to learn what's out there. Run your epigenetic testing. Run your basic labs. If you don't have the finances to do this, there are programs popping up all over. There are research trials popping up with people like Verda and others that are helping people with, with high risk um, diabetes and cardiovascular 
metabolic issues. There are centers, one I'm part of that we're trying to build that creates a scholarship program for people who don't have the funds to come and do a deep dive into their metabolic functioning and know really how to become resistant and resilient to what we're facing in our you know, health today. And so I know I'm like soapboxing the crap out of this conversation today and throwing some kind of big pieces out here, but you asked like, what can we do? And so much of it is you have to take personal responsibility. You are, I mean, you, you, there is no excuse. We live in such a world today that all of the information is available to all of us. Even if you live in a tiny, I mean, I travel extensively around the world and you could be in the middle. I mean, I can't even tell you how many places I've been, like tiny places in Kerala, India, the middle of nowhere. And someone's on an iPad. I'm like, what? You know, they're, they're, there's like internet. It's like, how in the world, you know, and uh, you know, places now I'm seeing like uh, where I'm living in LA County right now and the, 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 all of the really socioeconomically depressed areas there have, everyone has been given a computer, like in this region, like the funding set up so that when everyone had to go home, every child, every household that never, ever, ever had a computer has one now in this area. Like now that there's a whole nother piece here. Someday we'll talk about EMFs, et cetera, but Still, it's like we are a collective culture coming together saying, how can we do more, do better, do, you know, make ourselves be more, be better. That's what's coming out of all of this. And I get so excited about, you know, the, the, the podcast influencer community, because you guys may be reaching more people than say the World Health Organization or the CDC or, or, you know, Fox News or whatever it is. It's like we are needing to disseminate some truth bombs we're needing to disseminate some empowerment messages. We're needing people to start to internally question everything in, on, and around them and start to adjust accordingly. And that's when we start to make a difference. And you can make that difference with your what's at the end of your fork. You can make that difference from where you put disperse your money. You can make that difference where you choose to you know, hang out and be in this world. It's incredible time. It's an incredible opportunity to reprioritize and find your joy, find your gratitude, find your purpose, because man, it's exactly at a times like this, crises like this, that really ignite the purpose. I, I expect full on purpose train to come out of this. And I'm starting to see glimpses of that. You know, when I do look for things, I've actually been watching the, I can't remember his um, name because I'm terrible with names and movie star folks, but on Netflix or not Netflix, on computer, on YouTube, the guy who was in the office has a great little 20 minute thing called some good news SGN. And I've been watching that because it's so positive and it reinforces a resilience. So if you're someone who's very vulnerable to the toxicity of media, only seek, you know, things that inspire you, you know, and make you cry with gratitude versus wither in fear. Yes. Cause what you focus on grows and now now is the time to reinvent yourself, to really take the time to do that inner work that needs to be done, to just get your life back on track, find your purpose, and live a life worth living versus existing, and really think about those inputs. And one of those inputs I just wanted to um, circle back to, you wrote a wonderful book that I have gifted to so many people, The Metabolic Approach to Cancer. And besides the quantum input, which I think is a huge component of healing, uh, which is why it's been a bulk of this podcast, mm -hmm. there's also the dietary input and yeah. what we feed our body and nourish our body and provide the raw materials. 
um, to be able to heal and recover from something such as cancer yeah. or equina syndrome. And you have uh, a very unique approach to that where uh, you look at bio-individuality and metabolic flexibility. And for those that may be new to the theory of metabolism of cancer, could you give a, a brief overview and then your insights on how, how you think the ketogenic diet plays a role? Sure. I'm going to give a very basic description of this because I'm very visual. And so when our cells are healthy, they're basically breathing appropriately. This is cellular respiration. And it's happening um, at the mitochondrial level on a little cycle in this little Krebs cycle. You might've heard about this in your biology classes in you know, high school. That's a normal physiology. It's like, great, we're breathing, we're taking in oxygen, we're taking in the raw materials, we're processing it through, we're making ATP, we're making energy, we're telling cells it's time to die when they get old and crusty and we're making new ones and we're just kind of keeping things flowing along, okay, constantly constantly. I mean, we have gajillions of these little buggers in our bodies. We have more concentrated in our liver and our muscle and our brains and our heart. And we have less in say our fingernails and our, you know, skin. And, you know, like we, you, know, we, you notice that the places that need more energy are more, you know, densely populated with those little mitochondria factories. But when the bucket of the mitochondria starts to get filled up with, you know, maybe you've got some epigenetic hiccups that pass down that, you are aware, you're like, oh, my dad had diabetes and grandpa had, those aren't, I'm going to get diabetes. Those are, I better do things now so I don't get diabetes. That's what that should do inside of you. Instead of I'm going to get, no, 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 I'm not going to get, I'm breaking it. The buck stops here. That's what that should tell you. That's the power of epigenetics. You have the power to change it. But let's say you have some of those things. Great. Learn about them, change them. Metabolism, like if you're constantly eating high, high sugar, if you're eating low, um, you know, like poor quality animal protein, if you don't have your vegetables in certain situations, if you have autoimmune conditions, if you have leaky gut patterns, if you've taken a lot of antibiotics, those things are impacting your GI tract, your ability to absorb your nutrients, et cetera. These are the types of things that you want to be looking at because over time, these accumulations, medications, wrongful diet, stress, familial tendencies, they all accumulate and they start to take down that mitochondrial function. The burden weighs on the bucket fills up and it does so more and more. That's why we can get away with a lot more when we're younger. And then, you know, and just a quick thing when people say, what about childhood cancer? Well, those kids came in with a whole pool of what was inside their parents too. So it's not that. And then wherever they're being, you know, there's so many elements people talk about childhood cancers. They were metabolically broken in the system because of toxic burdens that the parents accumulated as well. So there's those pieces too. But in normally as we age, our mitochondria become more and more burdened. And that's why we have an increase in other chronic illnesses as we get older. But over time, those accumulations, we all have a different threshold. They finally hit their, their point. And those mitochondria, that little respiration system I talked about stops breathing. Okay. It's like it holds its breath. And then it starts to ferment, not in the way we want, not like a good old kombucha or, you know, good old pickle or sauerkraut, right? This is like the ferment of when you have flowers sitting in a vase too long and it starts to stink, stink, stink. That's what's happening at the cellular level. It's like the garbage cannot go out. It just sits there and turns to a liquefied goo. All right. When that happens, the body, because it's not like just when you're bonking, you're going to quickly reach for something carbohydrate dense, right? If you're like, Oh, I need an apple. I need a piece of bread. I need something like banana, throw it in here. 
that's what's happening to your cells as well. They're like, give me more sugar, give me more sugar, give me more sugar, give me more sugar, which makes it even more congealed. And it's like the quick energy, but it's inefficient at the end of the day. And then it stops. It basically, at that point, it goes off the tracks. It's no longer listening. So the metabolism of cancer is very different than the metabolism of healthy cells. And they just kind of take a split in the road. So when we can bring change back into the system forcefully with fasting, carnivore, vegan, low, you know, low carb, paleo, low carb, high fat, low carb, ketogenic, even exogenous ketones, and even some pharmaceuticals, we can reset that internal cycling pathway of the mitochondria, give it enough of a hormetic stress. So like if you've been vegan this whole time and suddenly you have this diagnosis, it's probably going to be important for you to make a strong shift to the other to kind of reset the system like a breaker box. So when I see someone like, well, because like I did in the beginning, I was, I was vegan and then I decided to hunker down even further into it, which was probably not a good idea in the beginning of my process. Had I been like a hardcore meat eater and gone vegan, I probably would have seen some benefit, right? So my point is that you need to make a shift different. That's that paradigm shift again, to kind of shock the system, bring in a, a hormetic stressor to the system to allow it to sort of recalibrate and reset itself. And that over time, once things stabilize, you're going to need different things at different times in your life. Like around surgeries, you need a certain amount of protein, right? You really need up your protein levels around surgery for wound healing. Um, if you're around just trying to cleanse and detoxify, you probably want to avoid protein or food altogether just to give yourself a break. If you're needing to just, if you're in a really good stable place and your gut function's good and you're not dealing with any autoimmune issues, probably a very balanced, low carb, normal carb omnivore diet is the way to go right? But there are times and places where we need to be therapeutic to intervene and change the chemistry back to a place of normalized functioning again. Okay. And so that being said, that might be if you've been, you know, for instance, you know, I, I, I've personally not seen carnivore really fare well in my oncology patient process, but I'm looking at things like IGF and, you know, insulin, and I'm looking at things like ACSL1 SNPs, APOE2, 3, 4 SNPs. I'm looking at um, certain mutations that can make meat um, and animal protein a bit more difficult for certain constitutions to deal with that it actually can feed and fuel into the cancer. But I've had patients who were basically, dis, you know, completely disabled with autoimmune conditions, including things like MS, who've taken a, a, a hit at the carnivore diet and completely resolved their issues or severe mental illness. I see that happen a lot. So people like Georgia Ede, I've used some of her recommendations on some patients with schizophrenia, severe bipolar disorder. Oh my God. It was like, it was like watching lights come on for the first time. I personally, you know, I tried the, the carnivore for a month and I was suddenly not pooping again, just like my childhood. And it brought up all kinds of trauma you know, for me, it does not work well in my body, but I understand my, my, my stuff. I understand my, my epigenetics, the whole bit. I'm definitely someone who needs a lot of fiber. I've got a lot of calm tea stuff. I know my own body. That's my own N equals one living laboratory experience. But I'm also the person who's like, I'll try anything, bring it on. Let me give this the world because I never want to say this is the only way because it's not true. My husband, on the other hand, is like, I'm he would thrive, like he loves, like he could be Mr. Carnivore. He loves eating like every bits and pieces. Like for me, I was a vegetarian for so long and a vegan for so long that I can't know that there's organ, anything hidden in anything. He has to, I don't even like it to look like meat. That's how bad it was for me. 
for all those years, but I know my body needs it to some degree. So my husband could like sit there and just pretty much eat like kidneys all day and be happy as a pig in, in poo, you know, but he also has some snips that if he eats too much protein, he, his blood sugars go crazy. So it's this dancing place. We all have to learn about ourselves. So you don't guess, you test, assess, address, don't guess. So you use things like instant feedback through chronometer, through keto mojo, glucose and ketone testing, through, you know, other blood testing to look at these things through your SNPs, you can know really well what's working and when. And like even now, I mean, probably TMI, but I'm moving into the, the perimenopause zone. My body is needing different things now. I do really well now with more cyclical ketogenic diet. So the few days to the week before my period, it's really nice for me to have a little bit more carbs. Now for me, carbs means a lot more vegetables. Okay. I just, I, grains and I are not friends. They never, they haven't been. Um, for a very long time. And then what's even better is if I can do a good three to five day fast at the end of my cycle, like that is like the reset button all the way. And so it's like this press pulse that like shifts everything and brought everything, my thigh where everything is just coming back into balance. And that's just kind of a new thing for me. Like, Oh, my body's changing. I got to change with her. I've got to see adapt with what her needs are. She's telling me very clearly. And if I keep trying to do it the way I was. I was fighting an uphill battle. So play with that for yourself, you know, like start to explore. Yes. I definitely think it's important to curate your nutrition based on the context of where you are health wise and as you evolve in that health journey. And one thing that's interesting to me with the ketogenic diet is the moderation of protein and yes. the role that it plays because it's very important to be in a therapeutic range of ketosis. And I know there's various um, aspects of the ketogenic diet. They have the modified Atkins, MCT. And I was just wondering if you could speak to the role of modified protein in cancer with the mTOR and the IGF. Sure, sure. So basically, the simple thing is that protein is needed for tissue repair and growth, right? Great if you're a growing kid, if you're a hardcore athlete, constantly breaking down, building up, breaking down, building up. Great in different phases, like I said, after surgery and whatnot. But when you're dealing with a process of a tumor growth, that process can go rogue. About 70% of tumors um, deal, like have uh, metabolic broken pathways around mTOR and IGF-1. Some say even more than that, but that's kind of where the literature settles. So if in doubt, 70% of your cancer type should probably moderate or lower their protein intake. 0.8 um, grams per kilogram is typically what we recommend for patients. If they're like getting ready to go into a surgery or they're severely cachectic, I might kick that up to one, maybe 1 1.2, depending on their physical output. But again, we use labs to balance this out. And I also do tissue assays. So I'm looking at their tissue typing. We can send that off to um, a place like Keras or Foundation One and take a look and see if they have issues along those pathways right? That we know a little bit more, is this a glycolytic cancer, et cetera. And again, people, you know, I, I hear out there in the, the world of nutrition all the time, I, I crack up because I'll hear on one camp saying not all carbohydrates are created equal and that you can eat certain sugars and they're fine. I'm like, what chemistry class did you take? Because it all turns into glucose people. It all turns in like all of this. So my, my husband, who's a, a biochemical nutrient, you know, biochemistry is like, whoa. He, he goes crazy when he hears folks out there basically promoting like as much fruit as you want, as many grains and all those good complex carbs. Those aren't problematic. I'm like, have you looked at your blood sugars? Have you looked at your insulin response? Like, don't, don't take that person's dogma for it. Let's take a look. Just like people saying that BS about a piece of steak being like a candy bar. Well, in my husband's body and many patients like, like him, 
it is exactly a candy bar. It is so clear, like to the whistle, you like I could eat a pint of rats, raspberries, nothing happens to mine. Um, my husband eats one raspberry, his blood sugar spikes. I could eat a steak and actually drop like water weight, like everything happens. My husband will eat his blood sugars will be like 120, 130 in the morning. All right. Insane. You know, we can watch these, his insulin response layers, his ketones drop, all these different things. We're all wired a bit differently. So don't like take the latest, you know, uh, nutrition guru's word for it. Test within yourself and know what works for you. But ultimately, just in common sense, when we think about cancer, you really want to avoid growth factors. And we know that you know, a lot of dairy products are high in IGF, a lot of animal products, especially if these are um, grass, not grass fed and grass finished. So if you're getting corn fed, the IGF levels are even higher. Okay. So that's a big one. I've actually seen patients who were eating knowingly grass fed and grass finished, and then went for a period of time eating conventional grown animal protein. And we watched their markers completely change and their tumors start to grow again. So that's important. Cause I also hear people out there saying, Oh, quality doesn't matter. That's I'm like, God. Like I love people make up these stories in their mind without actually looking at the data of the patients involved. It's like, could we just get back to that? Because we don't have to guess anymore. It's pretty easy. So that's the simple thing is that for those patients, we want to keep the protein a bit low. Also in certain cancer types, we even want to keep the calories a little bit low for periods of time, especially around any cytotoxic therapies such as chemo or radiation. That can actually be a powerful strategy to protect the healthy cells further and kind of do a Trojan horse push of the toxic therapies into the cancer cells, which can help them apoptose um, quicker. By the way, apoptosis is under the direct guidance of mitochondria. It happens at the mitochondrial level. So if you've broken mitochondria, which is basically cancer, right? You um, don't apoptose. So no amount of treatment, no Integrative therapy, no conventional therapy will do the trick. So that's why I believe that fasting or caloric restriction or ketones themselves upregulate mitochondrial function and induce apoptosis. So it just enhances whatever other therapy you're bringing on board. And I find the ketogenic diet a very powerful therapy for cancer and neurologic conditions. And it truly is a lifestyle. And one thing I wanted to ask you, which I know some of our listeners may be wondering, they've done the ketogenic diet, they've put their cancer in remission or are maintaining it, their quality of life has increased. Can they then add foods back in? And I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were on that. That's a good question. And you know, I tell folks, um, you'll get to a point where when your insulin's below three, your hemoglobin A1C is below five, your IGF one, if you're still cancering, I'd like it around a hundred, you know, like I want it pretty suppressed. Um, you're metabolically flexible enough that you can go several days fasting with no problem, you know, and not be, get the hangries and whatnot. And you're fat adapted at that point, you are likely going to be able to start to kick things, you know, up a little bit, play with your chronometer, play with definitely, I do very focused testing during that time. I will say this, I've not found that to be a very successful strategy for my patients with brain tumors. Okay. So I pretty much when I, and, and I've just, because I've done it so many times with patients, I've personally found that my folks with brain tumors, um, just need to be on this forever therapeutic ketogenic. That's just been my experience. Sometimes they have to go deeper into, um, fasting. Sometimes they have to do caloric restriction. They have to kind of mix up their strategy within that arena. Um, and, and it's funny because they'll all say, well, you know, when you've been given 12 to 18 months and now you're 12 to 18 years out, 
screw it. Like, I don't care. I'll eat whatever it takes to just keep having life. Some people get, you know, if you're getting in the way of yourself, like that donut means more to you than life. That's probably something to explore. And I've seen patients choose donuts over life. That's okay too. That's completely their journey to do so. But ultimately the patients that I've seen that really get in trouble, they'll be cranking along and doing beautifully. And they get through the, you know, like two, three, four scans, brain scans after, and suddenly they're like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm going to get a little lax with this. And it's, it just, that's a particularly vulnerable cancer type in my experience that really you don't want to mess with the metabolic switch on that one. You want to keep them pretty tightly controlled. That one's really, that's like a metabolic process really gone rogue. And so you have to be a little bit more assertive with it. Same thing with a lot of our epilepsy. A lot of the neurological things seem to be that way. You know, that, that wiring probably there's so much, it's also difficult to get things across the blood brain barrier and ketones are very powerful, easy, you know, fix to get that in there. But the other cancer types for the most part are very, you know, you can start to loosen it up a bit. I still don't ever recommend getting a, uh, much about 50 grams of carbs a day because I think that's how everybody should eat. When RDA nutritionist recommendations are that we should all be eating less than hundred grams of carb a day, they say that. And then they say for men, less than 25 grams of that to be sugar. And for women, less than 20 grams of that to be sugar. You laugh because that's their breakfast recommendations. An ADA, like a, a recommendation for diabetes breakfast has more gram carbohydrates. I'm like, they're speaking out both sides of their mouths. It's bizarre. That's why you have to get something like chronometer to do the work here because People always think they don't eat sugar until I start doing diet diaries with them. And I start having them use chronometer and they're like, holy cow, by the end of breakfast, I've had 200 grams of carbohydrate with their low fat skim milk, their Cheerios with their banana and their side of toast. So like that's the AD, it's a dietary association recommendation for cardiovascular disease. Get all those grains in there. Oy vey. You know, it's like just the types of stuff that happens with that. It's like you can, you, again, you don't have to take my word for it, start testing, analyzing your own data. It's so incredibly empowering to see what's going on under the hood. And you don't have to listen to anybody else's advice for you. Follow your own, follow your own. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to ask you uh, in closing, cause I wanna be respectful of your time cause I know you have a call coming up. Um, what would be your final words of wisdom for people that are in the midst of reinventing themselves in the second half of life that may be sitting right now in their living room after a devastating diagnosis in the middle of a, a world pandemic. And they've just listened to this podcast and they're empowered and they're going to start on their healing journey. What closing words of wisdom would you leave? And then uh, finally, could you just tell people where they can find you? Sure. <clears throat> so I think we talked a lot about it kind of throughout, kind of sprinkled throughout the whole conversation today, but please remember that you are far more powerful than you were led to believe. Please keep exploring what brings you joy, gratitude, and purpose. Please look with your eyes wide open to everything and everyone that is on, around, you, know, you know, in and around you. Okay, That's really important to start to take a, a, an audit of your environment. Okay, what's going on there? And so just becoming aware is really powerful. That's your first place to start and the, the answers will come after that. And, you know, I know we kind of took some pretty heavy talks today, and I know I kind of threw a bunch of little bits at you, but I want people to understand it's never one thing or one treatment and that you have to keep exploring to find what's working well for you and just become a life learner in this and do your own exploration. 
And in the meantime, you can kind of find me on um, several places. So Instagram, Facebook under Dr. Nasha Winters, um, Dr. Nasha Inc., Metabolic Approach to Cancer. And then my website is drnasha.com, D-R-N-A-S-H-A.com. Also on that, I've got tons of freebies of great podcasts and lectures and other recommendations and handouts and a great one about uh, metabolic flexibility that you can download. I do have some cool training courses for physicians coming up who want to learn more about how to apply metabolic approaches to cancer for their patients. And I'm also starting a patient, uh, like a cancer patient um, group on applying metabolic approaches to cancer in your day-to-day life that's hopefully getting started by the end of this year. Um, But really, it's all about learning together and taking advantage of the stress in our lives and the world around us to use that into building more of a resilience and path and purpose versus to get crushed under the weight of it all. So thank you for having me today, Nevada. Really grateful. Oh, thank you so much, Nisha. I am so appreciative that you did this podcast today. I think it's going to empower so many people. And I just wanted to personally thank you because you played a huge role in my own personal journey because when I was recovering from a spinal cord injury, I was looking for people that beat the odds and I found you and I read your book and it helped me develop my own healing protocol and really empowered me in doing that. So thank you so much for shining your light in this world and for all the work that you're doing to help and empower so many people. Wow. Thank you. What a joy. (laughs) All right. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast today, Mind Body Breakthrough. Chris and I truly appreciate each and every one of you. Be sure to subscribe and tell a friend and to join us in our free Mind Body Breakthrough Facebook community where you can start peeling away the layers of everything that's not you so you can be you.